Hej Søjma. Hey, Foo. How you going? Hey, it's exciting to be looking at the story of God. Hey, and how we can live in the story. So far, we've looked uh, at Genesis 1 to 11, looking at the purpose of God. And today we're looking at God's promise. And we're going to look at God's promise actually for three more weeks. Today is the first, looking at Genesis 12 to 15, childless nomads, Abraham and Sarah. So last week, Genesis 1 to 11, we saw that the purpose of God, the project of creation, is to create a world, a heaven and earth reality into which God will eventually come and dwell. And he's called human beings to be his agents, his image bearer, bearers, his angled mirror to reflect his love and, and wisdom into the creation and to reflect the praises of creation back to him so that the whole creation can be a temple in which he longs to dwell. And then we saw that the project got off track. Adam and Eve fell and then by Genesis 11, it looks like the entire project has run aground. Even after God wanted to put it right through Noah. But now, with Genesis chapter 12, <laughs> the book of Genesis turns its great corner. And in a sense, it's the greatest corner that the story will turn until we get to Jesus Christ. And in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it all starts to get better. Because when God calls Abraham, a childless nomad from Mesopotamia, he says, go, to your, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. <laughs> and I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you feel a sigh of relief <laughs> when God says this to Abraham? We thought the whole creation project was going from bad to worse. But now there's a new promise. Now it's getting back on track. So that the apparent failure of the project of creation with human beings as God's image at the centre, that failure is going to be put right. <laughs> and the story of creation is being rebooted with Abraham. And just as Adam and Eve were given the Garden of Eden and told to be fruitful and multiply and look after it and bring flourishing to the world... So Abraham is told that God is going to make him into a great nation and God is going to give him a, this particular land. But it's not just this promise of a family and of a land. Abraham is going to be the channel of God's blessing to the whole world. All nations will be blessed 
through him. And from here on in, the story of God will be about the fulfillment of this promise. This is now the topic sentence of the entire Bible. And this promise will be fulfilled in two stages. The stage where the people of Israel, Abraham's family, for more than a thousand years will be living in the land that God had promised them. But then out beyond that, God's purpose was never just for one nation. It was always for every nation. And this then will be the theme. So Psalm 2, God says to the king, Ask of me and I will make you the nations for your possession. The ultimate parts of the earth, your inheritance. In other words, the promise of God to bless every nation through Abraham's family will be fulfilled through the Messiah. The Messiah who will come, Jesus Christ, will bring this blessing of Abraham to the whole world. And so the land promises to Abraham and his descendants was always meant to be a signpost, a foretaste of what God wanted to do for the whole creation through Jesus Christ. And this now is what the Bible is all about. This is what the story is all about. Abraham's 75, but his father died at 205, we're told in chapter 11. Well done. Uh, 205. The year is 2091 BC. It's the Middle Bronze Age. And Abraham is living near Haran. This is Haran today, but then it was a thriving metropolis in Mesopotamia that worshipped the moon god. And what's amazing is God just says go and Abraham goes. Leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And Abraham believes God and he goes. This is the image of God idea being rebooted. This is now a human being that God can partner with to bring flourishing to the creation. This is somebody who puts their faith in the word of God. And so Abraham journeys to Haran where he's living, to the land of Canaan. No doubt following ancient trade routes, he goes with his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot and their flocks, herds and servants. It's a very long journey, but walking is their way of life. They're like Bedouins. They're pastoral nomads who are used to travelling around, staying somewhere for a few months, then moving again, then moving again. And Canaan is a small strip of land, just here, <laughs> Mesopotamia, huge, huge civilization to the north, Egypt, powerful, powerful civilization to the south and here's this strip of land Canaan which was contested sometimes the Egyptians controlled it sometimes the Mesopotamians controlled it 
And this is the land that God chooses to give to Abraham. The land right in between these two huge superpowers at the centre of everything. And 4,000 years ago, Canaan was a green place with forests, fields of wheat and barley, bears and lions and large fortified cities. And Abraham doesn't get given the land straight away. He's only one man and his wife. And yes, they have lots of servants. And yes, his nephew Lot is with him. But this is a very big land for just one household. And so Abraham travels around the land. And he travels around in chapter 12, verses 7 to 8, putting down markers in the form of altars. Do you like this map? Someone drew it. I don't know who, but I love it. Altars, piles of rocks where Abraham worships God. Not Mount Carmel, that's not part of it. Um, But Abraham goes around putting these altars up, worshipping God at these altars. It's as if Abraham is claiming what God has promised. He doesn't possess the land yet. He's just sojourning in it. He's just moving around in tents. But putting up these altars at all these different places is like claiming that bit of land and that bit of land and that bit of land uh, and saying, this is a place where God will be honoured. This is a place where I will serve God and I will pray to him and I will thank him as a sign that God is going to give me the whole land. Notice God appears to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 7. This is this theme of God has created creation as a temple, a house containing heaven and earth, where God himself as creator longs to come and dwell with his people. And that theme of God coming to be with his people, joining heaven to earth, runs like a golden thread through the whole story of Genesis. In other words, the story isn't just about God making promises to Abraham about a family and a land. It's God coming to be with Abraham um, in the land. (laughs) God is actually there making these promises to Abraham. And the story is all about God wants to dwell with his people. This is the big story of God. And he's already coming to be with Abraham. And then in response, Abraham, when God appears to him, calls upon God, worships him, and celebrates God's presence with him and builds these altars (laughs) that mark where God has appeared and remind himself that God is going to give him the whole land. And so in chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, God appears to Abraham at the great tree of Moreh near Shechem. 
And God says to your offspring, I will give this land. So again, reiterating the promise. And so Abraham builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him there. And then in verse 8, he goes and moves to a place in the hills with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. That's how I pronounce Ai. There he builds an altar again and calls upon the name of the Lord. In other words, Abraham is kind of staking a claim for the land and he's responding to God's promise. And this is going to be important for us as we understand how we are to live in the story of God. He responds to God's promise and revelation of himself. Uh, And he says, well, God has revealed himself to me here Here I will worship God and I will thank him and I will declare that God will keep his promise and give me this entire land. Then in chapter 12, verse 10, famine comes to the land and Abraham flees to Egypt. But in Egypt, God blesses him and he returns a wealthy, very powerful man when he comes back to Canaan. Then in chapter 13, Abraham is back at this place between Bethel and Ai and he separates from his nephew Lot. Lot moves to the fertile land in the Jordan Valley uh, while Abraham stays in the hill country of Canaan. It's fascinating. Chapter 13 verse 10 says... Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord. We got that next one. Um, Yeah, so this is the plain of the Jordan Valley, as was. And Lot sees that it's like The garden of the Lord. It's so well watered. This is the only specific reference to the Garden of Eden in in the rest of the book of Genesis. That's interesting. Now, to people who live in countries that are well watered, like Sweden, (laughs) with rivers and lakes everywhere, This description of the Jordan Valley as well watered like the garden of the Lord may seem exaggerated. But to people 4,000 years ago who were living here, this was indeed a fruitful and beautiful place. And Lot says, hey, it reminds me of the Garden of Eden. And this description of the Jordan Valley as the Garden of Eden is contrasted with the story of the wickedness of Sodom, verse 13. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. This is Sodom as was. Sodom and Gomorrah are in this Jordan Valley. And so we see unheard of depravity in the context of unheard of beauty. These wicked cities in this 
beautiful, beautiful Garden of Eden-like place. And this will become a standard theme through the story of God. There's a similar description of the arrogant king of of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, verse 13. Ezekiel says, you were in Eden, says this to the king of Tyre, you were in Eden, the garden of God, likening the city of Tyre to the garden of Eden. And yet the king was evil, he says. Also, Ezekiel 31, verse 8 and 9, likens Assyria's beauty (laughs) to the cedars in the garden of God. These passages suggest that parts of this world approximate to the beauty of Eden. Even though creation is weakened and defaced by human beings, and even though the image of God is marred in human beings, Eden is still reflected in certain places in the creation. And in some measure, the legacy of Eden is echoed in every garden, in every beautiful and fruitful place. And so the story of God is that God wants to make creation his garden again. And this land that he's giving to Abraham is a foretaste. It's a Garden of Eden place uh, that points forward to what God wants to do for the entire world. And the beauty that still exists in the natural world is still a glimpse for us of what God will do for the whole creation one day. And so in chapter 13, verses 14 to 18, God again promises Abraham, just look north, look east, look south, look west. This is the land that I'm going to give to you. And he says, imagine if you could count the dust of the earth, (laughs) so shall your offspring be. Later he talks about the stars of heaven. We've got the stars of heaven, the dust of the earth, two things you couldn't possibly begin to count. And God is promising Abraham this vast, uncountable family. And God tells Abraham, 13 verse 17, Go walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. And so in 13 verse 18, Abraham moves his tents and comes and settles at the Oaks of Mamre. This is a picture of that, an artist's interpretation. This is at Hebron and Abraham again builds an altar to the Lord to mark that place. Again, it's as if Abraham is saying, wow, God is revealing himself to me. He's telling me what he's going to do. I will worship him here. And it's always this rhythm, God revealing himself Abraham worshipping at that place. Notice all these trees. The oaks of Mamre, the great tree of Morah near Shechem. And later in Genesis 21, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree in Bathsheba and calls on the name of the Lord there. These trees remind us of the Garden of Eden and highlight that God's project, his purpose for creation, 
that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2 last week is starting to come true. God wants to come and live with his people, join his life with theirs, heaven meeting earth, not earth over here and heaven some way distant. Heaven and earth fused together, God with his people dwelling. And this is beginning to happen. And again and again, Abraham is being drawn into the life, presence and promises of God. Then in chapter 14, Abraham's nephew Lot gets into trouble. Uh, Abraham goes and rescues him. It's one of the funniest stories in Genesis, I reckon. That's not normally read out at church because it's a bit madcap like a Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera. I was in four Gilbert and Sullivan operas when I was at high school. Anyone else been in, in those? Yeah, wow. Uh, it's so crazy, those things, and comic. And this reminds me of Gilbert and Sullivan, these local kings in their little kingdoms are all attacking and Abraham comes in and defeats them all and rescues Lot. And the way that the story is told is a way of saying, look at these people, they're messing around. Uh, but God's purpose, focused on Abraham, is so much greater. And if these people think that's how to run the world, God's got a better idea. <laughs> and then chapter 15 we get a passage which will become hugely important in the New Testament. Because Abraham, after this moving around the land, building these altars, after Lot separating and going into the Jordan Valley where Abraham then stays in Canaan in the hill country, waiting for the promises of God, Abraham now <laughs> is given a guarantee and this passage we're now going to close with is so, so, so important for us as Christians because God forms a covenant with Abraham. And in chapter 15, Abraham is puzzled after this defeat of these kings because he still doesn't have a son and heir. He's childless. Sarah is childless. What's he going to do? And he has various people who work for him, who travel with him. And it looks like the senior one, Eliezer, is going to inherit all that Abraham has. And so when God says in chapter 15, verse 1, Don't be afraid. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. Abraham says, What are you going to give me? I'm still without a child. The heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham is grief-stricken. Abraham longs for a son. And God had promised him that. And so Abraham says, You haven't given me offspring. The heir of my house will be a servant born. But then the word of the Lord comes to him. The word of the Lord comes to him. That phrase is going to be so big now in the story of God from here on in. The word of the Lord came to him, especially in the prophets. 
And God said, this man will not be your heir. Your own offspring will be your heir. And then this wonderful moment, he brings Abraham outside and says, look up at the night sky. And this is 4,000 years ago in the Middle East, no light pollution. Billions and billions of pinpricks of light. And God says, so shall your offspring be. Abraham, formerly the moon worshipper, God says, the moon's not going to guide you. Look at these stars. That's how many children are going to come through you. And Abraham believed God. And that belief, that belief that says, okay, God is the creator. He can do this. And he said he will do it, so he will do it. The text says that that belief, the Lord credited to Abraham as righteousness. The Lord credited to to him as righteousness. That word is so misunderstood. It means right relationship with God. It means God establishes a covenant with Abraham. God credited it to him as righteousness means Abraham is now in a relationship with God where God has bound himself to Abraham. And the rest of the chapter is about making a covenant, making this binding agreement between God and Abraham. The covenant made in a very ancient way, it begins with a vision and and then continues with Abraham taking certain animals, cutting them in half and placing the halves opposite each other. Very strange to our modern ears and God makes a further solemn promise and then the climax to the whole thing is this smoking fire and flaming torch come through between these carcasses and we know from later stories that the smoking pot and flaming torch must be symbolizing the presence of God himself that this is like the covenants of the ancient world where somebody would cut animals in two and then walk between them as a way of saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, I will be cut in two. God is saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, I will be cut in two. And God is using the cultural language of Abraham's time to to absolutely pledge himself and bind himself to Abraham and to the promises God has made with Abraham. Of course, later in the story, God will become a human being and be placed on a cross to make the ultimate covenant When we look at that, we know God is serious. 
We know he has bound himself to us. He will keep his word. And the promise is then reiterated in verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be aliens in a land, not theirs, and will be slaves there for 400 years. Talking about they'll go to Egypt and be servants in Egypt. And Abraham's going to have a great family and be given this land, but before that there's going to be this terrible time. It's going to take over 400 years. And it's going to look like God isn't keeping his promises. <laughs> Because there's no, I will keep my promise. I will give you a people and a land, but it's going to take time. And I will bring judgment on this nation which will enslave you, which is Egypt. And afterwards you will come back and I will give you this promised land. Um, And then God finishes off by saying to Abraham, As for you, yourself, you will go to your ancestors in peace. In other words, you will die in your due time without having been given possession of the land. Abraham dies with just a plot of land that he buys for the burial of Sarah. That's the only land Abraham actually owns when he dies and your family will come back here God says out of Egypt in the fourth generation and God says for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete and that's one of those phrases where you go the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete what on earth and here we're touching on what theologians say is the moral providence of God that the nations that Abraham has come to live amongst are wicked the Amorites and all the other nations, they're doing things of such radical wickedness that it is against the model of humanness that God has in mind. And so God is saying to Abraham, you, you will eventually come and dispossess them or your people will. But only when their wickedness has reached such a pitch of evil that the only word I can bring to them is a word of judgment and destruction. So partly God is waiting 400 years to give the Amorites time to repent. Amazing. So Abraham gives, uh, God gives Abraham this look forward, this promise, which is ratified by this covenant God pledges himself to this and Abraham believes it and that belief is not just believing in God in general terms it's believing specifically in the promises of God of a land of a great family a family of many nations so that all nations will be blessed a family consisting of a vast quantity of people from all over the world and the covenant is then reinforced and focused in Genesis 17 Abraham has to circumcise himself and he's 
son that he's had by then. We'll get to that next week. The circumcision is a sign that God is going to do this by grace through the promise. It's not going to be in Abraham's own strength or the people's own strength. It's all by grace. And so Abraham is then promised in chapter 17, verse 6, I will make you fruitful. Remember Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply. Now God says to Abraham, I will make you fruitful. You can't do it yourself. I will do it. I will make you into a a great nation. Kings will come from you. And this is reinforced again and again and again and again throughout the Bible, throughout the story of God. God does it for us according to his promise and we are called to believe. This is the important point, faith. Now, how do we live in this story quickly as we close? We are bearers of this same promise through Jesus, who is the Messiah, the one who was to come, who will bring this blessing of Abraham to all the nations. And we, by faith, through grace, are part of that whole blessing. We have received the blessing. And now we are people of the promise, just as Abraham was. So what do we learn from Abraham's story about how we can live by faith? Faith in this promise. What do we learn? This whole series is about living in the story of God. Abraham lived by faith in the promise of God because he had to live by faith because he hadn't received it yet. He was there in the land but it wasn't yet his. He didn't yet have a son. So it was by faith. The land wasn't his yet, but he lived as if it was. He lived as if it was coming. He lived in confident hope. He set up these altars, these markers, worshipping God, thanking him for what God would do calling on the name of God, he claimed the promise. How do we do that? How do we do that, do you think? I was trying to think of our equivalent of setting up markers like Abraham. Uh, What do you think it is? And I think... One of them is our gathering. Jesus is our altar. And we come, we gather around him. It's a marker for us each week. Not in space, but in time. Where we remind ourselves of the promises of God and where we respond in worship. In other words, this gathering is a new creation gathering meeting in the fallen present in the full and confident hope that one day we will be part of the creation made new. 
that Eden is coming. Um, We gather in hope. We gather as the people of promise. Look around you. We are the people of promise. See the love, see the hope, see the faith around you. All of that is a sign to you that this will happen. And the spirit amongst us and the gospel preached is like our Ebenezer. It's another way of saying these altars that Abraham sets up. It's claiming the promise. It's reminding, it's celebrating the truth of what we live in and the story we believe in. Also, we saw earlier that glimpses of the new Eden are everywhere in the beauty and fruitfulness of this creation. And Jack gave me a book uh, this week, and Eleanor mentioned it last week. You know, that every moment that we experience beauty and fruitfulness in the creation is an opportunity to, it's like a sign to us, and it's an opportunity to, at that point, worship God, thank him. And this whole book gives us a whole bunch of little prayers that we can pray. Seeing a flower in bloom, O Lord, who so lavishly adorns the fields, how radiant must your eternal glories be. <laughs> Just saying that little prayer, you know, so that, so that this, is, this is our equivalent of these altars that Abraham sets up. Every time we see something profoundly beautiful, we stop and we worship, we thank. Uh, hearing birdsong, seeing a beautiful person, stargazing, observing a tree swaying in the wind, watching storms. We had an epic st- hailstorm on last Thursday. See, these are tokens that God is giving us. These are tastes of the future we are longing for that has been given to us and the promises that have been given to us are about. Tasting pleasurable food. These are, it's got, they've, got a, he's, they've got a really cool prayer here when planting flowers. <laughs> uh, the forms of these flowers are the intentional designs of a creator who has not abandoned his broken and rebellious creation but instead wholly given himself to the work of redeeming it. He has scattered the evidences of creation's former glories across the entire scape of heaven and earth. And these evidences are also foretastes of the coming redemption of all things. There are tastes of Eden everywhere. We can respond each time. These are our Ebenezer, as it were by worshipping the God who is giving us this future. One thing I recommend is gospel communities going to lookouts and taking a guitar and using that moment of that beautiful place to be responding in worship. There might be lots and lots of other things as well <laughs> to, be, to be trying to do as we, keep, as, as we live by faith as we live as if this future is reality, um, even though we're still in the fallen world we're in. Amen.
Thank you, Daddy. Son, you're beautiful.